something. We know we're going to go to trial. So I know immediately my client is negative $100,000 just paying me to go all the way to trial. We sell a case for like 15 grand. And I build like five grand. But, you know, once we unrung the bell, because the plaintiff's lawyer wanted to go to the trial and been able to say, you know what they would have done with a go to hell letter? They would have said, they how different would it be if the same thing started looking now like you wouldn't change if nothing else really did? Subscribe and hit this like button and share this with a friend. Hey, this is Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. This is Christian D. Evans coming at you. I thank you so much for listening to this. We interview top level eight and nine figure entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs that have either had an exit or they are actually running and scaling their business to that billion dollar valuation. We've also interviewed top level TEDx speakers as well as incredible psychologists, also a lot of wealth managers that manage a billion dollars to 200 billion dollars and more we've had incredible guests like sachin kajarian cameron harold jay abraham and so many others so if you find this of value then share this with a friend and we really appreciate it guys show our guests some love by liking this and subscribing and guys until next time remember be uncommon if you can and enjoy the episode cheers Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. The Disruptive Lawyer's Little Black Book of Litigation Management. He is the co-author of this book. He's also the founding partner of Cruiser Mitchell, Novitz, Sanchez, Gaston, and Zimit Law Firm. Over the last 30 years, this man has developed a reputation as a nationally recognized, aggressive, and creative trial lawyer who can handle the most complicated and high dollar matters. From complex commercial class actions to sophisticated EPL, professional ENO, and civil rights matters. He has also a reputation with clients for resolving the unresolvable and has become regional and national counsel for a number of clients in high exposure cases. Please welcome the founding partner of Cruz and Mitchell, Novit Sanchez, Gaston, and Zimit Law Firm, my friend, Bill Mitchell. How are you doing today, Bill? Hey, Christian. Great to, great to be here. Thanks for the introduction. Um, it's an honor to be here. Well, Bill, I am looking forward to this conversation. And I want to build this first question. We're going to dive right into it. But let's build a little context. In the Disruptive Lawyer's Little Black Book of Litigation, this is what I think. This is, this is the catalyst that helped build the firm that you have now. You talk, you assess the new cases and agrees it was an MSJ case. Now, some of these people don't know what, what we're talking about, but in, in context. But you, you decided in serving dis, uh, discovery and taking deposition, you decided a different direction. You set out to convince the plaintiff's counsel to dismiss the case against his client due to its lack of merit, instead direct his attention to the other case, case defendants. It worked, and you secured a voluntary dismissal from the plaintiff's counsel without any discovery. Now, the fee was only for $5,000, and it could have been $70,000 fee budget. And so some people in the case was closed with six weeks of the assignment. Some might say law firm, your firm could have lost 65, but not litigating the case by not litigating the case. But in fact, you thought long term, which I thought this was really cool. And the result and the process that produced it led to hundreds of cases and were instrumental. And there's two things that I want to share building this context. One, that was the catalyst to obviously building the incredible law firm that you now have, which is, has dozens of attorneys over 50, several, several states, but also the the paradigm shift, the unorthodox approach in which you approach that case. So I want to ask you, Bill, where did that come from? What was that thought process? How did you come with that unorthodox approach? I wish I could say, Christian, it was my idea, but I wasn't that smart. Uh, I worked for a big firm in Atlanta, and we had a billable hour requirement minimum. And the minimum essentially required you to be there at least 50 hours a week. And but that was the minimum. And, and so we were working 60, 70 hours a week. I worked five and a half, six days, at least six days a week, um, my first six, seven years as a lawyer. And I was, was a young guy and I'm begging this new potential client to give me some work. And actually I do, I do civil defense work, defending corporations and insurance companies in a wide array of, uh, of, of cases from, you know, Products liability to employment discrimination to you know engineering malpractice. So I was begging this insurance uh, uh, adjuster. He was a he was a claims a VP of claims to give me a shot, and 
he had no reason to give me a shot and he shouldn't give me a shot. I was a fifth, six year lawyer. So he shouldn't give me a shot. But one day he called me and he said, Bill, I've been working on this um, new book of business. We have a new client and they have their own counsel. They've been using this counsel for several years and I've been using her for about a year. And I'll tell you what, we've given her 10 cases. She's 10 for 10. We've won all 10 cases, but every case has cost us about $100,000. We just got this new case in. It's a sad case. It's a death case. There's five defendants. We have one of the defendants. We hired her again and she gave a budget and an evaluation saying, we're going to win. It's going to cost 70 grand and I'll be able to file a motion at the end and we'll win the case. And then she got a conflict. So he called me and said something very, very simple. He said, here's the deal. Get rid of the case quicker and cheaper and you're my lawyer. And I had never heard that before. My goal had always been to ethically bill as much as I can and work as hard as I can on cases and and fight and fight and fight as hard as I can um, thinking that would lead to better results. And when he said that, it was it was like bizarre world, right? We're flipping what we do. So I had to rethink how to approach the case. It changed my paradigm of, of how I think of cases and attack cases. And you know, the stars aligned. I might have developed or realized I had a skill set that I didn't appreciate as a you know at that time I was a thirty year old lawyer, and I was able to go to the other side. And after two or three or four conversations and a couple, you know, I use honey and vinegar. Um, and at the end of about a few weeks, I got the, the, the lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer agreed to voluntarily dismiss my client and I billed $5,000 on the case. And so when I went back to my partners and said, Hey, this, there's this case out there. And I just got, did a great result for my client. Uh, you know, they wanted to they budgeted 70 grand. They were willing to pay 70 grand legal fees. And I got rid of five grand. And, you know, my partnership was like, what are you thinking? We lost $65,000 on that case. And as I tell people when I speak, I made millions on that case because that client has used me for 20 years in seven, eight different states. Um, so it was a it was a epiphany and a brilliant epiphany provided by a guy named Charles Spencer, who was the the uh, VP at Hartford at the time, the Hartford. And, and it's been my litigation philosophy ever since. And you know, I don't want to say I'm a one-man team advocating this. Um, slowly, the industry has gotten on board, and, and there's a lot of naysayers and a lot of folks who attack the philosophy, um, and some have some legitimate concerns, which we can address today, um, but, but many do not. So that's the background. So it's interesting because that individual, right, uh, consciously or unconsciously, they, they put parameters around and said, hey, go out there, win this with less amount in a very short period of time. And so you had to figure the, figure it out. And you are big and, and I love the disruptor kind of concept, right? Because it's like going out there and you, that's what you guys are known for, disrupting it, right? And, and thinking on unorthodox, which became almost a DNA of your, of your law firm. My question is when you're kind of integrating with new different um, strategies, or maybe even let's take this case, for example, what made you think, okay, hey, let's go directly toward the planet. Let's go directly to uh, and negotiate because negotiation is also kind of your guys' almost secret sauce, if you will, because you guys are so good. That is part of your DNA of, of the law firm. So help me understand about how, how you integrated that and what that looked like. Well, well let's, let's reverse engineer some things that I think, you know, as, as I became a, a more seasoned lawyer, I realized you always, it's better to start at the, the end and that way you can develop how you're, you know, how you, how attack a case. Through my writing and speaking, I started doing a lot of surveys and talking. I've talked to thousands and thousands of generals, counsels, risk managers, and insurance claims executives and claims managers and claims um, adjusters. This will shock you probably. What this all together in litigation, all cases in litigation, 1% of all cases go to trial. 92% settle, and then seven or 8% get resolved through the through motions, motions to dismiss or motion for summary judgment. Um, so 
what my when I do my presentations and I do a um, negotiation series, I have a very, very simple question. If you know 92% of all your cases are going to settle, when do you settle them? After you pay your counsel five grand, 10 grand, 40 grand, 100 grand, when are you going to settle them? 92% settle. And so the, the, with the, what you have to appreciate then, if when you think change your paradigm and realize that that's the end, 92% of the time you're going to end up with a settlement, how can you attack and strategize to get there a lot quicker? And there, trust me, 1% go to trial and you don't know what that 1% is. It takes a, it takes a, um, a unique eye, a critical eye and a talent to appreciate the 1% that are going to trial. And I added that, I do a presentation on identifying the 1%. And so there are, you know, you're gonna have to pre prepare probably five or 10 or 15% to go to trial that then won't go to trial. But going back 20 years ago, we prepared 99% of all cases to go to trial. The life of every case 10, 20 years ago would be a year or two. Today, our life of case is, 60, 90, 120 days. And what, that, what does that mean? That means legal fees are a lot less. Cases, the longer cases go, the more complicated they get, the more expensive they get. And trust me on this, the more they cost to settle. Defend all, when, on the civil defense side, we have a saying, a case rarely gets better for the defendant. We have all of the witnesses, the employees, we have all the documents, all the policies, all the procedures. So usually cases don't get much better than for us. Some, some witness, some ex-employee ex comes forward and says something we didn't expect. Some document comes forward that we didn't know about. They don't usually get better for us. So the best thing to do is get your arms around a case, evaluate it. And if you think it's going to be in the 92% bucket, aggressively find a way to move the case. See, so let me ask you this then, and this is what I find so interesting about this, is are there, when you're going into it, when we know that obviously this is outside of trial, which is a good thing, because then as a defendant or whatever that may be, you have a little bit more control around that. So what other techniques do you leverage uh, that are very important when you know that you're running off of that baseline, that foundation saying, hey, okay. you know what, we don't want to go to trial because that's a lot of controls that we can't obviously uh, facilitate. So what does that look like? Well, well trial is very unpredictable, right? So, and we all know this, 12 strangers walk in who have different philosophies, different beliefs, different, um, you know, approaches to life. And so they're, it's, it's unpredictable. Um, Georgia was just voted this year, the judicial hellhole of the United States. We're getting cases I thought was, were worth a million dollars, eight years ago are going for 10 million. Cases that were a couple million are going for 20, 30, 40, 50 million. It's outrageously crazy. Um, you can't predict anymore. But you know what we're trying to do is every case has leverage, good leverage and bad leverage. And, and when I do my negotiation seminar, I'll start out by asking, the best way is give you an example. I'll start out and say, hey, Ladies and gentlemen, let's say you just hired Bill Mitchell to handle one of your cases, and I reviewed the case, and I said, hey, here's the deal. In every case, before um, we start um, litigating, I give an evaluative report within 30 days, 60 days, and I say, here's the good, the bad, the ugly, here's what I think is going to happen, or here's what I need to know before I can get tell you what's going to happen. But in this scenario, I'm telling you, we're going to go to trial 10 times, we're going to lose 10 times. And the value of the verdict will be $1 million. And I look into the audience, I say, okay, we lose every time and the value, verdict's value is a million dollars. What is the value of the case for settlement purposes at mediation? And I'll, people raise their hand, 90% will say, well, it's a million dollars. And I'll say, well, wait, okay, that's trial value, mediation value. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What happens if I told you that? The plaintiff lives in Hawaii, the child's going to be in Florida, and the plaintiff has four young children. Do you think she might take $950,000 not to have to go to Florida or $900,000? What happens if we have the case that the plaintiff is a guy and we'll get evidence in that he cheated on his wife? 
Do you think he may not want strangers and maybe even his wife to know he cheated on her? So maybe he would take $700,000 instead of the million dollars. Every right. And I just told you two scenarios that really had nothing to do with the law. They're, they're, so every case is a kaleidoscope. If you're a really good negotiator, every case has a million different scenarios that could be leveraged to help get a better result or a worse result. And really, really good lawyers anticipate, uh-oh, if they figure this out or they know this, we're in trouble. So we maybe need to act a little quicker to move the case. But in the last, I've been doing this for 33 years, Christian. In the last year, I've resolved two cases for much less than they were evaluated for, for um, leverage points I had never used in my entire career. The, the stars aligned in these cases that these two leverage points that I've never thought about or used in my career perfectly fit into this case, in these two cases, and we moved them for a lot less than we initially thought they were worth. Um, so I have a leverage point checklist that is, uh, it's 50, 50 points on it. But literally, there's hundreds, depending on the specific case. Uh, and the problem we have without filibustering you is in our industry, the legal industry, in law school, I wasn't trained to negotiate. When I was a young lawyer, anecdotally, I watched my boss negotiate. If I went to a CE, continuing legal education, maybe I would learn mediation 101. I just went to a, a national conference uh, six months ago, and they had three trainings it was all for insurance people and i was teaching there i was teaching on litigation management but there was like a there was litigation management part there was a you know you know general liability part a you know part and there was a mediation um school and i ran into somebody one day that i didn't know and i'm gonna talk to them and 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 the i said oh you're in the mediation school and this is and the person said yeah we were there at eight classes for eight hours today i said so so what was the best leverage point you learned of? And the lady looked at me and said, leverage points, you don't understand. This is, this, this is mediation school. I'm like, well, you understand like the, the fundamental foundational issue to mediation negotiation is leverage. Are you telling me you didn't learn anything about leverage or leverage points? And she's like, no, I think you're mistaken. I mean, we, that rule isn't applicable to what we're doing. And, you know, that's like saying, hey, we're going to go to football practice and we don't ever bring out a football. I mean, it's kind of hard to practice if you're and don't ever get the pigskin out. Um, so so that's where we are fundamentally in this industry, um, even on the other side, the plants lawyers. And I'm not my when I do this, I'm not trying. Yeah, I want the best deal for my client and the best deal. My client many times is there's low, reasonable and high, reasonable. Um, and many times, and one of my biggest leverage points is educating the plaintiff's lawyer. Many times the plaintiff lawyer, we have all the information, many times the defendant. So it's, it's, and we can, it's advantageous to us economically and efficiently. Sometimes we go to the plaintiff's lawyer and say, Hey, you think you're buying this beautiful mansion? That's going to be worth $2 million. I'm telling you, it is a money pit. Your client's lying to you. Here's documents that prove it. And here's, um, I got three affidavits that I'll give you that will say that your client, which they're, they're saying is wrong. And we'll settle the case for, for maybe a zero or the cost of defense. And that lawyer's literally, thanks, I didn't know that. Because if they, you don't tell them at that point and they're 10 months into the case and they've spent 200 hours on the case and spent 20 grand and, on depositions and 20 grand on ep, you know, experts and they're $50,000, $100,000 in the case, they can't walk away from it. So you have to be strategic and unconventional in how you approach these things. And, and the, the lawyers who attack this philosophy and claim people attack this philosophy, I call them dinosaur lawyers. And they, they will be extinct. It's just when, I'm not sure. So with, the, with this concept of, you know, you have a list of high leverage points, right? And whenever you go to a case, 
So my question is, when you're doing this, do you have like, okay, it's contextual. Here's this, the situation. These are the high leverage points. And then you're basically able to, you know, align, okay, these are the five or six kind of leverage points we're going to use in this circumstance. Yeah. Um, and do you also have, because I'm, I'm a big believer in contingencies, right? Not that the plan A is not going to fail. It's just that you anticipate if it does fail, this is how we're going to counteract that. So what does that look like in regards to, okay, ensuring, hey, if they say this or they deny this amount of money to, to kind of, you know, um, solve yeah. it outside of the trial, then this is our contingency. This is what we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. What does that look like, Bill? Great question. So, so we're playing chess, not checkers. So you got to think two or three moves ahead. For example, and this happened to me when I was a young lawyer. I had a case where I found some evidence against the plaintiff that pretty much I thought was fatal to their case. And I knew the plaintiff's lawyer very well on a personal level. So I went to him and said, hey, I got your, your client. Uh, and we got some information, evidence on your client. You probably should walk or whatever. Stupid, stupid mistake by me. Um, he, we took the, his client's deposition a week later, and she came up with the most crazy excuse to counteract what I had told him. And so, so, so when I tell you to be, when I speak and tell and advise clients that we will share information, strategically you share information. Like if it's, for example, I've learned that lesson. If, if you, you, some evidence, you might have to lock the plaintiff down before then you share it with them. Other stuff, I share evidence that there's no way they can get out of. For example, we do a lot of uh, employment discrimination and breach of contract cases. So we might get a case where the plaintiff thinks they're going to, it might be as simple as this. We're fighting about money. Not like we, 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 we fired someone, we shouldn't have fired them and we breached the contract. Now we're firing about, we're fighting about money. And the person says we should, they, they should get a $500,000 bonus. The old days in, in nine out of 10 other firms, what they would do is they would go into litigation and we'd exchange documents. And after we exchange documents, we would take depositions. I call it the deposition bleed. We do all these depositions. And after 50, $70,000, Maybe then we talk turkey. What I do in that case, and I do it all the time, is I'll call the other side and say, I know you, got, you thought your guy was going to get a $500,000 bonus. Whether, rather than taking the CEO's deposition and the director of um, you know, sales depositions for two days and you know, prepping for 10 hours and, and double, come into my office next week. We're going to sit down and I'm going to show you the objective data that shows that your guy's bonus is actually $175,000. And we'll sit at a conference table. And guess what? Let's say the guy comes back and says, well, you don't have this document. It really is $500,000. I rather know then, then bill $100,000, then he springs it on me. And we're still, so it's either you pay, it might go away for 175 because I think I'm right. And I build 10 grand on it, right? So the cost of the case is 185. Or if we have this meeting and we realize, oh crap, we actually do all the 500 grand. It will, if we resolve it then, it's 500,000 plus my fees is $510,000 versus we litigate 100 grand and then we settle it. So 510 versus 600. You understand the difference? So the quicker you get the parties together and educate each other, the more likely you can come to a resolution. And I, I, I've come up with this quote re recently, the most dangerous lawyer is an uneducated, uninformed lawyer. So on both sides. So that's the goal. The more information evidence and you can share playing chess, not checkers, the more likely you can get to a result quicker. And the quicker we get the result is, I'll conclude by this, on this point. I believe in litigation. 90% of the time, only the lawyers win. I've, I've gone to, I've tried a bunch of cases and I frankly have won a lot. Of, I probably, I've won 95% of all the cases I tried because I know which cases to try. I'm not saying I'm a great trial lawyer. I'm really good at knowing what cases to try, but I've never had after we tried a case and won, a client look at me and say, you know what? This has been the eight, best 18 months of my life. And I'm glad I spent two weeks with you here at, at, at your trial instead of making widgets. 
I want to do this again. No one has ever said that to me. It's a painful, painful experience. And that's why only 1% of all cases ultimately go to trial. Because at the end of the day, the motivation is to get this, you know, behind them as soon as possible, as quick as possible, and being able to find someone like yourself that's able to, um, you know, uh, you know, collapse that time frame. Now, I am wondering a little bit as you're talking, Bill, in regards to um, perception, as well as human behavior and human psychology. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was a trial lawyer, and he had to drum up a story, right? Because obviously, you're trying to convince individuals to, for your case. And in that circumstance, you, you use data, but you uh, you, you sprinkle that into a story that you're you're facilitating. Right. Um, how much how much does that apply to when you are negotiating? Uh, you know, in that circumstance and the conference table, do you have to drum up, or is it more of just that data back and forth and saying, well, in this circumstance, and like you just mentioned, it's more of like, hey, strategically, this is what we have. This is what you don't have. This is the reason why you should you know kind of uh, negotiate in five hundred thousand. That's what we're going to do instead of you're asking for one. 0.5 million or whatever the situation yep. is. So how much do you have to drum up the story or is it more of just in that circumstance, you know, outside of the trial, it's more of just the data and negotiating and more that, you know, perception and making sure that you're, you're um, you know, deploying that effectively. Well, I think, again, you got to figure, you, you want to play the cards that you feel comfortable playing that won't come back to, to boomerang on you. Um, and Yes. I, I mean, that's, if you get an eye to eye with the other side, you know, you understand many times plaintiff's lawyers are a filter. So whatever you tell, if they want to, if they want more money, they may not tell their client what I told them. So if we can arrange a scenario where I can have face to face with some actual plaintiff, who's the one that is the real decision maker in a case, it's way more effective than me telling some lawyer who then tells their, their um, client what they want them to hear. So you want to do an Elta. So the other thing you want to do is, so you want to educate the plaintiff many times, not all times, because there's, there's exceptions to every rule. I'm not trying to say 100 out of 100 times. There's exceptions all the time. And you want to frame the issue. I've been in cases, I, I do mostly big cases. So, you know, I'm doing cases that are worth anywhere between a, a million or two to $50 million. That's what I'm doing nowadays. And I'm flying around the country doing mediations on huge cases. I, some of the lawyer might ha handle a case in, in Chicago and then I'll fly up you know, and take over the mediation and the negotiation. I've been in cases, I call it, you have to frame the issue. I've been in cases where you know, the plaintiff is, a re, you know, there's a chance they could get a zero but there's a chance they could get $10 million. And I'll walk into the case and say, ma'am, and this is unprecedented. When I did this in a mediation a while back, they were shocked, but it, it, it was effective work. I said, Mrs. Johnson, you don't know me. I flew all the way from Atlanta to specifically meet with you today to try to get this case settled. And I'm gonna promise you one thing for sure today. When we're done negotiating today, you will never, have to work again. And the question you'll have to decide is, do you take the deal today where you'll never ever have to work again, or we're going to go to trial and Mr. Smith here, the Chicago lawyer is going to try the case. And if he wins and you get a zero, you know what will happen the following Monday after trial? You return to the United States Post Office and you have 10 more years to work there. That's what we're, my goal today is I don't want you ever have to work again. So you had a plaintiff who came in wanting 10 million. And let's face it, somebody who worked for the United States Post Office and made 75, 80 grand a year, if they got a million or $2 million, they're set for life. Now it's not 10 million, as I tell people, other, to, to, to help quantify it, I'll tell people, we're here today where you're going to get the Cadillac money. But if you want the Lamborghini, you're going to have to get it from a jury. Because you got to help have people realize, yeah, 10 million is a lot, but your life changes at a million or two. If you get a million or two, your life completely changes. Yeah, 10 million would be great. But so one, a really, really good lawyers are great at framing the issue in a way that's most appealing to the plaintiff. In some cases, I have death cases where the plaintiff doesn't care about money. 
They do, but they don't. They lost their daughter. They lost their husband. And in those cases, you the, you know, the, the leverage changes. The leverage may be, I've been in cases where I'll say, you know, you're, we, there's nothing I can say or do today is going to make this you right. I know it isn't. But here's what I hope happens today, Mrs. Johnson. You lost your daughter. We're terribly sad and sorry you lost your daughter. The one thing we can achieve today, if we can resolve this case in mediation, is closure and some financial security, because the alternative is this is going to go on for the next year in discovery, then a trial, and then an appeal. And for the next three years, your lawyer, who's a really, really good lawyer, is going to be reminding you daily of your daughter's death because he's going to be telling you about the case and reporting you on the case. So today's an opportunity for us to find a way to honor your daughter, give you all what you deserve, and allow you to have some closure to think about the good times and move on, right? So every case is different. And, and again, I'm telling you stories that have nothing to do with the law, really. They're about what is appealing to that person that will motivate them to want to resolve the case. And sometimes you have to remind them. And sometimes I look at the plaintiff's lawyer and I'm like, yeah, that's actually right. That probably wouldn't motivate us to get rid of the case. So, and trust me, there's times I've been wrong, you know, um, but really good lawyers and claims people, GCs, risk managers can look at a case and figure out what will motivate the case, the other side to resolve the case. Sometimes it's fair. Now, sometimes you just know someone is anxiety riddled and there's no way they want me to be in trial cross-examining them. So you subtly throw in that. And it's, it's a truth. I'm not intimidating them. I'm telling them the reality. You know, you're about to go on, um, you're going to sit here for a week where you're going to be the focal point and a lot of people are going to be beating you up. Is that worth the pain and suffering of us trying to resolve it today? So there's a lot of tactics in this kaleidoscope of, of leverage points to, to, to resolve cases. That is so golden and why it's so golden. And I really appreciate you unpacking that bill at a micro level, because it's like understanding at the end of the day, what does that individual want? And then be able to give it to them and then reframing the whole situation and say, Hey, we can take care of this right now within the week or week and a half right now. We can, you know, sign the, the paperwork of rock and roll, or we can drum this out for another 18, 24 months, which nobody wants to do. And that's going to be a constant frustration, constant annoyance. So reframing that whole thing. So really reiterating that that's part of the negotiation process when you're having these conversations dialogue and like you mentioned you are talking some high uh you know seven mid seven figure eight figure you know checks right some some big big you know court cases and so forth so nobody wants to go to that direction i am intrigued by preventative measures right so once this happens right then the company looks internally or whoever's working with you uh bill and your your law firm and they start looking okay well what can we do to ensure that this doesn't happen again um with that conversation, do you help them or almost kind of give them uh, some guidance in regards to saying, hey, to ensure that we don't get ourselves in this circumstance, make sure in your legal documents or your onboarding or whatever the situation is, make sure you do these, these things to ensure that obviously you can mitigate that risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, well, well there's many lessons learned during litigation. Because companies who think they're tight with their HR policies or employment policies or tight with their safety protocols usually learn in litigation that maybe they had protocols, but they weren't followed. Um, or, you know, you know how many cases we get where there's all these protocols and they're really tight and the per the tractor trailer driver who ran over somebody and was on meth, we found out, Oh, he got, he got an accident six months ago. And, he was supposed to get the drug test and he didn't get it. And people are like, oh my, how can that happen? And so here's, so in litigation, the legal burden of proof is on the defendant. I mean, strike me, on the plaintiff, on the plaintiff. So in a civil case, the judge charges the jury and says this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the plaintiff has to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant did blah, or the defendant was negligent. Preponderance of evidence is more likely than not 51% essentially. 
So our industry on the defense side, I'll be in trial counsel. Um, we're a case, they'll, I'll helicopter in to consult. I know this case is going to trial in a month. What do you think? And everyone's saying, well, you know, the plaintiff can't prove this, can't prove that, blah, blah, blah. And I say, stop, guys. The, these juries, it's a subjective standard. I believe the burden of proof is actually on the defendant. And the burden of proof is literally this in most jurisdictions, except especially liberal in inner city jurisdictions. That you need to prove your case such that when the jury goes back to the jury um, room, they say, I don't know what else that defendant could have done. That's the burden of proof. So in risk management, I say, you that's what you got to do. You can't sit there and say, well, you know what? That's not our problem. But I looked at the law and we, we weren't really technically required to do that. I tell them, assume it was your family driving on the street with that trucker. Is he buttoned up that you'd be comfortable that? You know, we, we do a bunch of apartment cases where there's assaults and murders and rapes. And the, and, and, and the argument will be, well, we can't afford a security guard. Or we have one security guard. And, and, and I'll ask them, let me ask you a question. If you live there or your daughter lived there, how many security guards would you want here, given that there was a rape six months ago? That should be how you look at risk management. And it changes your paradigm and approach. Because when you look at the law, the law, though it seems black and white, and you could say, well, no, 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 I'm not required to do that. Juries don't look at it black and white. They look at it as gray and they look at fairness and equity. And we on our side have to start thinking, and we are, we're doing a better job. Plants lawyers forever have done a very good job of telling stories. It's called the reptile theory. They do a good job of, of making the defendant a bad defendant, an unsafe defendant, and we need to send a message by walloping them with a huge verdict so they'll fix what they're doing for the future. And we walk in with these very, very unsympathetic stories about, you know, the law says this, we didn't have to do that. And, you know, besides, it's not as bad as you think. Those aren't good defenses. And so, you know, Again, in conclusion on your question, as a risk manager, you should be looking, if, I, if it were my kid, my family, my wife, whatever the scenario is, what would I want done? And on top of that, there's great value in mitigation. Sometimes we just mess up. And lawyers are ruining the world by telling their client you can't apologize or you can't do freeze, don't do anything. It, will, it, will, it suggests guilt. Look beyond that. You know how much, if, if you mitigated, I had a case where, I apologize for war stories, but I think they give context. I had a case where I get hired on an employment case and they, it was a scary case. So they bring me in and, and they had another lawyer on the case and, and, and they bring me in in a large famous restaurant at the end of um, the day the, the manager stands up and says, there's 400 bucks missing. And we looked at the video, Jonathan, you took the money, you're fired. In front of the whole staff, fired Jonathan. Two days later, another, the owner looks at it, the video closer and says, Jonathan didn't take any money. I'm looking at the video, he didn't do it. So the other, when, so they didn't really do anything about Jonathan. Then the, the, the employee hires a lawyer and they write a letter saying, hey, you wrongly fired my guy, blah, 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 blah. And the lawyer for the, um, for the restaurant had a letter this long, go to hell letter. And I'm like, freeze. What are you, are you crazy? We messed up. We're at fault. Stop. We are in mitigation mode. And literally, know what we did? One, immediately tell Jonathan he can come back to work. We knew he probably wouldn't want to. 
But one, tell him he's going to come back to work. Two, you announced to the whole staff that Jonathan was a thief. You now need to have a meeting immediately and announce to the whole staff, you made a mistake, Jonathan's not a thief, and we want to rehire him. Three, you need to put a letter up in the, the lunchroom or the break room saying, for the people who may not have seen or weren't were attended at the first meeting, but not the second meeting, that we wrongfully fired Jonathan. He's not a thief. Four, we're not going to send that letter that told him to go to hell. So once we do all these things, I call up the plant floor and say, you know what? You're right. We messed up, but we've unrung the bell the best we can. How much you want? We knew we were going to pay something. We know we're going to go to trial. So I know immediately my client is negative $100,000 just paying me to go all the way to trial. It's a case for like 15 grand. And I build like five grand. But, you know, once we unrung the bell, because the plaintiff's lawyer wanted to go to the trial and be able to say, you know what they would have done with a go to hell letter? They would have said they fired the wrong guy. They know they fired the wrong guy. And then they tell us to go to hell. You, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, need to tell them to go to hell with a million dollar verdict, right? I mean, they called him a thief. Um, we sell the case for 15 grand. And I'm not saying it's a great result or a, a bad result, but cost of defense wise, it's a really good result. And so you, again, it's a critical eye and it's, it's, it's somewhat unconventional because nine out of 10 aren't thinking that way because they've been told don't think that way. Um, so you got to be thinking that way to, to mitigate and just to do the right thing. Sometimes you, it might cost you money to do the right thing, but it's better to do the right thing because I think juries are more willing to forgive if you immediately after what happened, try to do the right thing. I love this approach, Bill, because, you know, um, I think lawyers do, and definitely when they're defending larger corporations, they get a bad rap because of those kind of, you know, slick things. We know that the, the, the wallet size of a corporation is so much bigger than an individual, right? And so yeah. they can obviously deploy a lot of capital. They can, you know, um, have this situation litigation run for 24 months, and that's fine because they can obviously fit the bill. But what I love about your guys' approach, and it's so unorthodox, and that's why I wanted to have you on as well, is saying, hey, you know, we're going to take ownership, and we're going to have empathy. We're going to obviously make sure we, we you know, navigate this situation for my client in the most proper way possible, but also we're going to do the proper things, right? It's saying, hey, we're going to look at the whole contextual situation. And in that circumstance saying, hey, we do take ownership. We did the wrong thing. And then instead of making a hundred, 200,000, a million dollar situation, big news thing, right? Whatever. Now, all of a sudden we're able to dial it and say, hey, look, our risk is 15K, 5K to them, whatever, and, and, and solve the yeah. problem, solve the issue. Because at the end of the day, as, as it gets even further and further down the road, it becomes an even worse situation, worse, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen that. I think there's a lot of circumstances uh, that we have seen that over and over where these corporations or whatever and lawyers tend to push that way. So I, I appreciate what you're saying in this regard. Um, when you're coming to these um, so we're talking about preventative stuff, which is really awesome. I'm also intrigued with when you're building out that foundation uh, and having these conversations, because you, you mentioned something in regards to like taking on a case that wasn't yours fully, because sometimes I've, I've, I've had these conversations where these corporations, they go to one law firm and it took 18 months. They didn't get anywhere with it. And then they have to come with you. Right. And so at that point, it would have probably been better to start with you because you could have been able to like collapse that time frame, solve the problem, be able to do it strategically. However, though, they chose the wrong, wrong individual. And a lot of our listeners, I think they've been in this situation where they chose the wrong law firm and they're like, oh crap, this is worse than the problem. In those circumstances, how do you navigate that um, kind of situations that have kind of like the, uh, the nails that have already been hit in the coffin and you're like, okay, wow, now we have to do, we have to kind of turn back the dial a little bit and how do we, you know, kind of restructure the foundation even when the foundation's already weakened because of the lack of integrity or lack of situation for the other law firm. Because I would imagine probably some cases I've been in your, you know, in your, in your arena that was like, oh crap, this law firm oh, yeah. really messed it up. Um, well, first of all, I want to be careful I think there, a minority of law firms is, is a lack of integrity. 
a majority is a lack of philosophy or skill set. And I've learned the latter mostly because as we've gotten bigger and bigger and, and more busy, I brought in lateral lawyers, senior lawyers to plug them in and realize you can't rewire them. If they don't have this philosophy, it's hard to change them, number one. Um, and number two, even if you can change them, that doesn't mean they have the skill set to get it done. And that's why this is so complicated. Um, and I like using football metaphors. And here's my metaphor for this, the general, this concept, concept. If I want one day, and I, I think they almost did this on the NFL Live the other day. I want to have a video of a defense, and I want Tom Brady to look at the video and tell you what he sees. And I guarantee you, when he looks at the video of that defense, when he walked, you know, he looked at the line, he can say the right cornerback is going to go deep. The, 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 the left linebacker's coming in just because he's a poker player. He can see the tells. He can read what everyone's going to do, and he knows where the hole in the defense is, and that's why Tom Brady's the GOAT because he can read, and he's, he's a, probably a better poker player than he is a football player. He can read people and read defenses. Blake Bortles, not to pick on him, walks up and he's like, well, I don't, I, I don't think they're really doing anything. I don't see anything. And Brady throws a touchdown because he finds the hole, and Blake Bortles throws an interception because he didn't see anything. Lawyers are the same way. Really good lawyers can look at a case and see things. They can go to a mediation and see in, in the discussions, hear in the tone that they're bluffing, see in a blink of an eye that they're not sincere. So how do you find that person? My, the best way I think of finding that person is you need to play money ball. My firm, we play money ball. We keep track of metrics. And what's crazy is the, the insurance and Big box, retail, et cetera, they're doing a better job of this. Most of them don't have, I do metrics and I'll go to my clients, many clients and say, hey, I, you gave us X cases last year. Let me show you what the average cost of the case was, the average life of the case was, how many depositions. We used to take depositions in 90% of our cases and depositions are expensive because they're, they're like cockroaches. It's not one, you take five, eight, 10, and then you want more documents and blah, blah. And next thing you, you went from 20 to 50 to 80 grand. We take depositions in 25% of our cases from 90% 15 years ago. So because of we have these tactics to informally share information. So what surprises me when I take this to, I'm talking about billion dollar companies who, insurance companies that there are litigation machines. That's what they do for a living. And I say, hey, here's my numbers. Here's my money ball metrics. What do you think? And they'll be, wow, this is very impressive. And I say, okay, how do I compare to my competitors in 99 out of 100 will say, we can't tell you because we don't keep this data. We don't know. Insurance companies, for every dollar premium they get in, over 50% goes to litigation, expense, and settlement. If 50% of your spend went to those two things, wouldn't you vet very hard, very, very hard your lawyers is to them being great, when, and you know 92% of all cases settle, wouldn't you vet really hard your lawyers? And to tie this in, I got a call a year ago from a Fortune 500 company, and they said, hey, we've read about you, we've heard about you, we want you to do um, an RFP, we're going to send you the, our form, great. The guy sends it to me, it's 10 pages, and they want to know ad nauseum, every case I tried, every result I got. And I called the guy up and said, hey, I will do this. It's going to take me a day, literally, because you want 25 years of information from me. Before I do it, I have one question for you. How many cases do you try a year? And he said, oh, are you kidding me? We got walloped for $5 million two years ago. We don't try anything anymore. And I said, then, then why are you asking these questions? Why don't you ask dealmaker questions? What percent of your cases you resolve in 60 to 90 days? What percent of the cases tells a, a negotiating story where there was a million dollars of authority and you got rid of it for 400 grand? If 92% if of all cases settle, and of those 92%, probably 60% we know are going to settle. We just know based on how they look, they're going to settle. At least 
And then there's 20 or 30% that they're going to settle, but I need a little more information. I need target information. I don't need shotgun information. I need to know one or two things. How do I get that? Do I spend 50 grand of depositions? So I call the plaintiff's lawyer and say, I need A and B. You got it? Let me see it. You know? Um, so the philosophy needs to change. And, and the one, the, I get indignant about this and I apologize. It amazes me again, if 92% of all your cases settle, why this industry is not laser focused on deal makers, especially when 50% or more of all their spend is on lawyers and settlements. And, you know, and I have client, I have care insurance companies who will say to me, well, Bill, you don't understand. We do not want a reputation of being a settlement machine. We are, we are not that we, we, we don't want that reputation. I'll say, John, that's fantastic. And I, you define a win. I'm not defining wins for you. What I'm doing is I'm just giving you reality and telling you to change your game plan and reality. So I have a simple question for you. I know you don't want a reputation as a, as, as a settling company. So let me ask you a quick question. How many cases you tried last year? And they'll be like, uh, well, uh, I think two. And I'm like, you're, you're a billion dollars. You know, I'm being with bottom line is the percentage will be like 0.6%. And I'm like, well, I know you don't want a reputation as a, that you're a settling company, but at the end of the day, you are who you are. You're a 0.6 tri company. So why don't you acknowledge that, that reality? And that's fine. Go put those cases in the trial bucket, put 10%. We're going to try 10%, put them in the trial button, hire general patent, who's the greatest trial lawyer and go try those 10%. And then the other 90% hire Henry Kissinger, great negotiators and go get them done. And you'll save millions, if not billions. So I just vomited on you, but uh, it felt good. Dude, dude yeah, it, it felt good on my end too, because this is so, so relieving. I love what you're saying, because uh, again, I've, I've talked to some individuals that have that orthodox where it's like, hey, our DNA of our company, we don't want to settle. But what you're saying, Bill, is look at the data. The data is saying, hey, 90, 60% of these for real, 100% will not actually go to trial. So why don't we you know, solve those and, and, and ask the right questions and have the right paradigm and the right mindset and um, the mental model, if you will. So I love this. Now, I want to ask you and loop back around in regards to, um, I had a friend of mine, and now this is totally uh, irrelevant, but I, I'm curious the context. So he went to a divorce lawyer in this jurisdiction. They tend to go toward a little bit more to women and he lost his kids, blah, 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 the situation, whatever. My curiosity is the same that goes with this, this corporate kind of litigation stuff. Is it really dependent upon the jurisdiction, right? So some, some states may be a little bit more leaning toward, you know, like I know, for example, if you're in the real estate side of things, you know, California tends to lean more toward more of the, the individuals that are renters, right? More so than the owners, right? right. And that you can just anticipate that so i'm curious is that the same and when if that is the same like it's very contextual and you want to obviously uh navigate that correctly do you navigate that how do you navigate that to ensure that you are in a jurisdiction that will most likely if you do go to trial which is very unlikely but even maybe um the circumstances where hey this is in favor of of your client well it's a really good question then the unfortunate reality is we don't have much control over that because jurisdiction is decided by things many times outside the defendant's control. Um, it might be um, where the incident occurred. So if it's a trucking case and, and, the, and the accident occurred in DeKalb County, Georgia, you're likely stuck in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is, you know, not very good for a, a defendant. Um, you know, you can do, one thing a defendant can do, a corporation can do is have their registered agent in a very conservative venue. In Georgia, it used to be Fulton County, then it went to Gwinnett County, and literally now I tell my clients Cherokee County. So sometimes they have to sue in where, where um, your registered agent is. You're just gonna get a better, a more conservative jury in Cherokee County. And you know, I tried a case a few years ago, it was a catastrophic case um, in a, a conservative jurisdiction in outside of Augusta, we got a defense verdict. If we would have been the next county over, we got hit for $10 million. It's that simple. And so when we do our evaluations, that comes in. That's a big factor. 
And plaintiff's lawyers know it too. They'll say, hey, you know, I understand all your arguments. I get it, I get it, but a DeKalb jury just won't care. They won't care. They're going to wallop you. And we got to deal with that. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But it's it's um, you don't have much say in that, and that's why I was I was wondering a little bit because I do know some circumstances. Okay, gotcha. Awesome. And I want to talk a little bit about before I let you go fully, Bill. First of all, I really appreciate the immense value that you brought, and I know that you have just immense experience. I love your your unorthodox way of doing this, having this conversation as well, and being empathetic in the way you approach it. But I want to talk a little bit about some series that are coming up. Um, uh, from January, you've done this numerous times, but I want to obviously bring this to our audience because no matter what industry, I think this would be very, very, uh, very valuable. Okay. It, your forty-minute uh, webinars to improve your negotiation skills and approach to settlement, and again, these are applicable um, negotiation skills. So, session one, session two. Please tell us a little bit about your your mindset behind it. What's your what's your goal with it, and then as well as how do they access it uh, for those that are listening? Well, great. Um, well, thanks for asking about that. Uh, so, bottom line is. Based on my experience, like I told you the story where um, peop, uh, clients and potential clients weren't getting much um, education on negotiating, given the fact that 92% of all cases settle, I decided two years ago to create a negotiation course called the Masters of Negotiation. And it's uh, a 10-point course. It started out like seven or eight, but through feedback, we were up to 10 now and they're 40 minutes because, you know, I know everyone has ADD now and they can't, uh, they're not going to last more than 40 minutes. So it's 40 minutes in and out. And I'll tell you what, you know, we'll have a couple hundred people on the call and 99% stay through minute 40. So that's how I measure if it's good or not. My feelings get hurt. If people drop off, you know, at my minute 25 or 30, that means I bored them to death. So, so, um, so they are entertaining. They are informative. I get feedback. A, a general counsel of 25 year lawyer who's been a general counsel for over a decade emailed me and literally said, I was skeptical when I was going to apply to, to listen to this thing. And I literally have learned stuff. I didn't even know. I didn't know in this course. So there are 10 courses um, from, you know, I got them. I actually got them. I'm writing a book. I'm writing a negotiation book based on the courses. So, you know, the first one is playing chess instead of checkers, the strategic approach to negotiation, the theater of mediation, um, the leverage point of educating the plaintiff's counsel, the leverage point of the plaintiff's needs. We've kind of touched on those things. The soft skills of a great negotiator. You know, um, you know, sometimes you know, really, really good negotiators can get the other side to communicate and open up and develop a dialogue where bad negotiators and communicators are in a fist fight for nine months and build 50, 100 grand. So, so it's a 10 point course and you can go to cmlawfirm.com to sign up or you could uh, email me at bmitchell, B-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L at cm lawfirm.com and uh love to have you it's free um and we are getting ce courses um we're, we're they'll, they'll probably be blessed for uh ce courses uh this this they start in january i believe january i don't have in front of me is it january 18th i think it, you can look yes. at the website yes january 18th yep correct and then i think the 25th as well and uh, so, Bill, again, I really appreciate that. Guys, those for those that are listening, those links are in the description below. That is CML Law Firm, CM Law Firm, excuse me, dot com. And everything is right there on the top there. You can go to Master Negotiation and sign up. Um, I'm going to be partaking in it as well, just because I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued by learning from, you know, people like Bill that is actually in the, the trenches and actually util utilizing these negotiation techniques in real time. Uh, again, Bill, I really appreciate you being on. I always love to ask my guests. Before I let you go fully, is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with their audience? Um, what's the hundred lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? What is it? A good start. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to change. People don't like lawyers, including their own lawyers, because many times we're complicators. Um, and the goal here is to be very good at resolution focused. And so at the end of the day, people look at their lawyer and say, you know what, 
they were resolution focused. They were business focused. They gave me a business solution and I got a great result for a reasonable price. And I'm glad our, our, our um, philosophies aligned because right now in this industry, I feel like philosophies between clients and lawyers do not align. And my goal is to get them to align. And so maybe one day that joke will be, what's, what, what's 100 podcasters at the bottom of the ocean? It will be that joke instead of lawyers. Well said. Well said. Guys, that is my friend, the founding partner of Cruiser Mitchell Law Firm, my friend, Bill Mitchell. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Evans podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.